Welcome to the Edges of Lean. I'm Bella Engelbach, and in this podcast, we explore the human and creative side of lean thinking, unusual places where lean thinking is practiced. We meet people who are practicing continuous improvement in many different flavors and styles. So come along with me on a journey to the edges of lean. Episode 21, Continuous Improvement and Conflict Resolution with Dr. Ted Thompson. Rector of Trinity Church, Swarthmore, and the Dean of Delaware County Churches for the Episcopal Diocese of Pennsylvania, Dr. Thompson holds a PhD from George Mason University's Curtis School for Peace and Conflict Resolution. As a consultant, he specializes in helping religious organizations work through difficult conversations and is working to build capacity for spiritually grounded conversation in the public sphere. Dr. Thompson also represents the Episcopal Church on the Interreligious Relations Table of the National Council of Churches. He's married to a retired FBI agent who's now a yoga instructor, and he has a 15-year-old son who loves baseball. Dr. Ted Thompson, welcome to the Edges of Lean. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. It's really great to have you here. And one of the things I like to do with this podcast is to bring in people who are not, you know, really in the lean and continuous improvement world, because I think we can get really narrowly focused on, you know, what we learn from one or two specific companies or one or two specific, uh, you know, lean leaders that we admire. And there's so much out there um, in the world that we can be learning from. Um, and the work that, that you are doing and what you know about it with um, conflict resolution and, you know, and the time that we're in right now, I, I believe is very, very important. And you have an interesting story about how you actually got into conflict resolution or, or academically learning about conflict resolution, hopefully not getting into too much conflict. Um, so you were, um, and still are, um, an Episcopal priest, and um, you were uh, the rector of a congregation. Um, so first of all, can you explain to us what a rector is, what a rector does, and then tell us how did you, why did you leave that to go um, back to, um, to get your PhD in conflict resolution? Sure, happy to do that. And by the way, please call me Ted. Uh, and, and I also want to say, Bella, that I've really appreciated getting to know about your work and in some ways seeing some situations, seeing you in action. And I feel like there's just a lot of overlap between uh, what we're trying to do. So good to be with you. Yeah. So what is a rector? Uh, a rector is uh, the senior pastor of an Episcopal parish. So um, in the Catholic world, that would be the pastor or at least mm -hmm. the senior pastor. Uh, and um, uh, we have other names for other sorts of congregations, but um, a parish is a, a semi-autonomous congregation, but within the Episcopal umbrella. And so it's 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 a spiritual role as a spiritual leader, right? But there's also um, an administrative role to it, and you know, I'm sure there you know there are financial pieces to it. So it's it's it is sort of a, it is actually an executive position. Um, uh, Yes, thank you for teasing that out of me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, there's, there is uh, administrative oversight. Um, certainly there's uh, responsibility for managing the worship life, uh, mm -hmm. being the primary uh, personal pastor for people, um, but, but also managing the organization. 
so you, but you left for a while. Um, I did. Yeah. So, so how did that happen? Right. So uh, I was out West. I was in the San Francisco Bay area. Um, I had gotten married and uh, my wife and I had a son come into our lives. Uh, this was all post 9-11. Mm. And, and I suddenly found myself um, or increasingly found myself restless and uh, more and more urgent about wanting religious organizations and my church in particular to do more to tackle the problem of violence in the name of God. I felt like at least my church, the Episcopal Church, had both more to give uh, and definitely more to learn about how to be um, what I was, what I would call a, a partner in global peacemaking. And so I, um, I uh, talked with the bishop about it, applied for a fellowship, got a church fellowship for it, and and uh, took off with my amazing wife uh, and uh, and child to onto uh, this in this journey, uh, which took us to Virginia uh, and the George Mason University. Uh, school for conflict resolution. Now it's called the Carter School for Peace and Conflict Resolution. After Jimmy Carter. After Jimmy and right, technically I think it's the Jimmy and Rosalind Carter School for Peace and Conflict Resolution. Yeah. So that was so it was it was not a seminary program. It was it was a um, it was a secular program that you went into. Absolutely, uh, it's a it's a public large. It's actually the largest research university in Virginia. It's a large public institution. Um, very secular in its um, orientations. And, and I think therein lies part of the interest in the story uh, because in academia as well, they're kind of trying to figure out what to do with religion. Right, yeah. And, and you know, it's the same thing, we, you know, I think we see, you know, and I, I know you know from your parishion as you kind of see in the workplace, right? So people come in um, with a spiritual background or, and, a, and or a religious background and, ha and may or may not be able to integrate that into their work, right? right? Or, and, or be able to integrate that into how they're, they're dealing with the world in a larger sense. Right. So, can, I, can I just yeah. add that that... that that, that actually is part of the story of conflict resolution as well as it developed, because originally I think religions were seen much basically as part of the problem. Mm. Uh, and then in the 90s, um, there were some seminal figures who helped to ask the question, but how, are, how can religions par be part of the solution and how may they hold wisdom uh, that could be mined um, uh, toward, being, toward all of us being better at uh, conflict resolution? And that was probably what drew me drew me into the work. So, so you came in with this the spiritual background, with the as a particularly uh, theistic uh, Christian background, probably a more, a more progressive Christian background, and yet there and yeah, I'm sure you found there are these other voices in the field. So, what are all of the and I wouldn't say all of them because this would be a very long podcast. And what are some of the, um, you know, the conversations or contributions um, to the study of conflict resolution that you learned about and that, that have shaped your work? Right. You don't want to see the notes I have for that answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'll read the notes. <laughs> no, 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 I won't. Um, well, yes. Part, so part of the uh, inspiration for even starting uh, this very early PhD program in a field called conflict analysis of resolution with an emphasis also on the word analysis 
was the um, the um, desire to create a real science around it. Oh. Um, this was in the late 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, you know, religion was very far um, off the horizon at that point as a potential source. Um, uh, psychology held a lot of sway uh, early on. Uh, war gaming, you know, this is Cold War. So war gaming scenarios in political science were part of uh, thinking about things. Um, you know, there were people were learning from uh, diplomacy and political science um, along the way. Uh, dispute resolution, for for instance, labor disputes, labor management disputes, became a major source of of um, of uh, study. And then over time, uh, people began to wake up to the fact, along with the rest of the world, uh, to uh, for the colonial critique, right? The need to get out of only a Western mindset for doing conflict resolution. So for instance, uh, a wonderful scholar, peacemaker, sociologist by the name of Jean-Paul Lederach um, did some work in Latin America and overturned that Western assumption that a mediator needed to be a third party neutral person. He found that in a Latin American context, you really have to have someone who's embedded in the systems because they're the, they're the trusted intermediate, they're, they're the trusted uh, intermediaries. So there's a huge cultural component as well to it. It's, 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 yes. not, just, it's not just his, his, his a series of steps that you can follow and all people all around the world will just fall in line. Absolutely. In fact, um, anthropology made a huge contribution to the field uh, by bringing to bear considerations of culture. Uh, Kevin, Kevin Albrook brought in the idea that culture really is a lens for understanding who we are and how we should relate. And uh, later on, other people, Leslie Dwyer and others, uh, have really continued to unpack what that means in practical, in practical ways for both seeing, understanding, and then working through conflict. So one of the things that I'm, I'm wondering about, and you mentioned, uh, you know, labor management disputes which is a uh, you know something that that we that we see i think continually whether it is you know union versus management or it's this idea of management and then the people who are not management right and that we don't see things the same way and, and what you're saying is it's it's not just that you can't just say well this is labor management in, in this particular instance, it's also, well, who are these people and, and where have they come from? And, and what, a, what might be driving their underlying um, beliefs and values? Right, I mean, again, I mean, it's easy to think of culture as a monolithic thing. Yeah. You know, and that, but then that gets into stereotyping and we have to be real careful about the labels we use, especially when we're entering into conflict, because in fact, conflict tends to, want to push us toward labeling people. And so we always have to be trying to unpack those labels and, and sort of turn them on their sides and look at, look at them from other, from other angles. Um, so um, uh, in fact, one of the things, another major influence in conflict studies um, in the past 10, 15 years uh, has been to look at the stories people tell about conflict and the way that we get trapped by these stories into roles. 
So even using a label, you know, labor management uh, can mm. tend to force that kind of a narrative. So exactly to what you're saying, to try to get in a sense behind that and uh, look at and explore with the people involved uh, who they are, what are the choices they're making? Why do they care about what they care about? Uh, and how can we come to a common sense of what, not only what the problems are, but even what the questions are. That in and of itself, that approach toward moving toward common questions is a whole approach within conflict studies. And you know what's interesting to me about that, and I'm sure to my listeners, is that in lean thinking, that's what we want to get to, right? We want we want to get to not necessarily what are the answers, but but do we even know what the questions are? Are we asking the right questions? When, when we think there's a problem, do we even have any real understanding of what the problem is before we do anything to right. try to solve it? Yeah. I, think, I mean, I think that's, I mean, I think that's exactly um, on target for specifically thinking about conflict resolution. Um, uh, you know, conflict gets us moving quickly, thinking quickly. We get truncated answers. Uh, we think simplistically. And so um, slowing down and making reflective space and having sort of a roadmap for how to um, open up that space becomes really important. So we've been talking about conflict resolution and, and, and your journey into conflict resolution. We haven't actually taken a moment to define it. Mm. Um, and so from your perspective and the work that you've, you've done, um, you know, from both an academic and a, and a consultant perspective, how do you define conflict resolution? Yes, it's hard not to tell the story. Yeah. Uh, and, and actually just, just have a definition. Um, uh, conflict resolution has, has for a while uh, was used as the umbrella term for everything we're talking about, but many people began to push back and say that it was too problem focused uh, and we needed to really think about conflict transformation uh, which is more about, which is more relational, uh, and, and more, uh, and takes a longer view often. Uh, so the language gets a little bit slippery. That's why I've adopted peace and conflict resolution rather than just the idea of conflict resolution. You know, I think the sort of certainly my knee jerk reaction, the conflict resolution is, is sort of the idea of mediation and, you know, you think something, I think something else, we disagree, right. you know, we may not be physically fighting, but we, you know, we're, we're not in, in, in harmony with each other. And we, you know, somebody comes and mediates and helps us arrive at a compromise, but that's really not what you're talking about, is it? Well, personally, I mean, mediation, uh, certainly fits within the larger scope of what mm -hmm. is meant by the phrase. But what I'm particularly interested in is, is um, the, the transformational aspect of this work. Uh, you know, how do we approach conflict in a way which brings us to a better community? Does that make sense? Well, I think so. But do you have an example you can share? Um, I have, so I've been thinking about a lot of examples uh, from my own work and, and yeah. the field of conflict resolution. And the truth is that, it, that, that conflict resolution is littered with seeming failures. <laughs> there is a mentor of mine, Mark Gopin, uh, who has devoted his life to working on the 
protracted conflict uh, in Israel-Palestine. Mm. And he said at one point to me, in a, in a poignant moment, I've lost every battle I've ever taken on. Every single one. But, but he spoke, but, spoke but, about it as a battle. But, well, but, yeah. but I, I, think, I think having had some years to think about that answer, I think I would challenge him and say, but look at, look at, look at, look at how many times you have been able to bring people together Look at how many groups of people you have been able to nurture and connect. Uh, look at the voices that are now part of the conversation that wouldn't have been had you not been part of this. And those are all successes. Uh, there's a wonderful person uh, uh, in the history of conflict work, uh, Elise Boulding, who likes who likes to talk about what she called the 200-year present. And what she meant by that was that when you're in the middle of a, of a, of a really deep-seated, and we're talking about you know, global, international type mm-hmm. of work, you have to look, you have to be thinking 100 years back and 100 years forward. That the present moment is, is comprised of the longest lifetime of a living individual and the longest future life of someone born today. In order to really make space for both the histories involved, the culture we're talking about, the embedded practices and habits, and you, know, you could think about this in an organization as well, and also to think about how long it may be to work through some of the some of the effects. Um, that probably is a longer view than most uh, organizational thinkers want to want to go. Uh- yeah, when you think of an organization you know, that, that has, you know, quarterly budgets to meet and annual goals to meet, you know, whether they're a for-profit or a non-profit organization, you know, but that's actually important, right? That you, you're, not, you're not thinking solely about what happens next week or next quarter or next month. You're actually looking forward and you're also, you know, really being cognizant of history and where we come from and who have we been. Um, yeah. Well, let me... Let me give you, let me jump in with, um, if I could, you asked it for an example, and I don't want to dodge that. Um, okay. So, 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 you know, I've done a lot of study of the, of the larger conflicts, but a lot of my consulting work really was, was in small organizations of, mm-hmm. of, of religious nature, churches, various denominations. So, you know, in, in one situation, uh, com- there was a conflict uh, around a staff member, um, um, not Uncommonly, it involves a music staff person. Uh, and in this case, a person was just not performing and it was becoming evident that there were significant lapses. Well, it turned out that he was being asked to do something that he literally could not do. He had a condition that prevented him from being able to fulfill certain obligations as they had been written up for him. And so the, the success in that situation was to get away, help people move away from blaming, help people move away from feeling like the only answer was for him to be fired and to discover, to enter into a period of discovery about what the obstacles really were. First of all, get clear about what, mm-hmm. uh, what where he was not performing, but also what the obstacles were to that and then reposition his job so that he could do what he did so well, uh, but not be um, burdened by things which he just did not have the capacity to perform. And, and I gotta, yeah, I got to yeah. say that sounds very much like um, you know some of the work that we we would do in continuous improvement. Um, you know where you would you really want to understand if if somebody's not meeting goals. Well, first of all, you know are those goals are they even important, reasonable 
goals, right? And mm-hmm. secondly, is there something in the system that's preventing them from re- from achieving the goals? But primarily, before you even get to that, is to you know step away from blame because blame makes it very difficult uh, to get anything solved. Um, yeah, yeah, that's- yeah. That's right. I mean, if you if you're listening to um, if you if you're listening to people tell stories about conflict. Uh, you can kind of judge how how serious it is um, by how much by how simple the story is to some extent, how simplistic it's become, um, and also um, how much denigration of the other is going on. Right. So if someone if someone is still able to hold space in the way they tell the story for the other person, maybe having made a mistake or just you know, not been successful, that's one thing. But if they're saying, if they've gotten to the point of saying that person is just a rotten person, he always is lying, he's always doing this and this, that's a character, that's a, that's a, that's a level of assuming a character flaw. Uh, and, and that's very common, actually. If, if conflicts don't get solved, people usually devolve into sort of harder and more crystallized views of trying to make sense of why the other person is not meeting their needs. And that has to get that has to get unpacked. Yeah, and then, and so people are then personalizing the problem to a person rather than rather than trying to or being able to see what might be some of the some of the things that are actually causing it. Right at the systemic level, um, at the right in, right. So I hope you don't mind me asking this question, but it just occurred to me because of previous conversations that you know that you and. I have had um, in in continuous improvement. You know, we talk about um, learning cycles. You know, where you you start with, with in in one place with your knowledge, and you go through a series of steps, including probably running some kind of an experiment in order to um, to enhance your knowledge. So so we, and we always and I, you know, we always say we don't. We say plan, do, check, act. So you you make a plan about what you want to do. You mm-hmm. you do it, which is to run the experiment. You stop and you reflect on what actually happened. What did you learn before you make it? Um, you decide what your next act or adjustment is going to be. Um, and so that you know that's a very simple learning cycle. But I I know that um, in your work that um, you have talked about this sort of being actually a double loop. Um, this is probably a hard thing to talk about in a podcast because we can't show any pictures for the people who are just listening. But I was wondering if you wouldn't mind just for a few minutes talking about what, you know, what is this double loop and, and how is it different from PDCA? Sure. So let me, let me back up and just say, um, uh, you know, I suspect most people who go through any kind of a management program at these days get something about um, how we learn, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, what I got out of seminary was uh, was the idea of an action reflection model, which is I think you which you've helpfully differentiated in in the loop that the learning loop mm-hmm. that you have, right? Um, that that seems to be the way that adults do best, um, learn best. Um, the the double loop you mentioned uh, comes out of. Um, what is called the insight approach and grounded in the philosophy and theology of uh, Bernard Lonergan, uh, a, a theologian, uh, 20th century, mid 20th century theologian and philosopher. Um, wh- what he was interested in doing, what he actually was convinced needed to happen 
um, no less than to help society move forward in a positive direction was to figure out um, what could connect the way that uh, some people want to hold to truth that is handed down sort of the classical mindset and other people want to understand truth as it, as it evolves historically and culturally. So this is a con constant tension in our society, right? It's the way, it's the way my fathers gave it to me. That's the way it should be. No, no, that's just your culture, my culture. And what Lonergan discovered was that when we focus on the questions, there really are um, some in, inherent questions in the way human beings do problem solving. And the questions are very basic. It's like when you, when, when something catches your attention, what am I noticing? And then how do I make sense? What, 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 what do I construct that to um, mean? How do I understand that? Um, but that's the, what you might call the lower loop or the first loop. But on right. top of that, there's a loop around valuing because once you decide what you know, what is the truth, then you have to decide what am I going to do about it? So it's a very problem or it's a very um, decision oriented process where we have to say then, well, what do I think of, of what's happening? Is it good or bad? What is, what is my obligation to that? What are the options around that? And what am I actually going to commit to? And it turns out that that basic set of double loop is inherent pretty much in the way at least that we can approach any any significant problem we don't have to usually go through it with consciousness because we have habits that serve us but when our habits don't serve us or when, some, when there's a breakdown either personally or communally it's very helpful to return to that sense of of those basic questions to figure out where things got stuck so, so I, I can I can think of a situation, and again, this is you know more of a situation happening in an organization um, where the people actually have two different conflicting sets of values. So, supposing one person has a value of ensuring that the people who work in the organization have um, are paid sufficiently, and the other person have a, has a value of making sure that the organization is not spending money that it doesn't need to spend. Um, and so they might say, well, now might be the time to, to lay somebody off. Um, and another person might say, well, you know, let's hang on and, you know, see if things get better because, um, because we shouldn't be laying people off right mm -hmm. now. Um, and so they could get, you know, and I've certainly seen this situation, they could get quite passionate about these two things. And have, if not being really clear in their minds about what is the value that is behind this, and these, this case, is, these are probably more of organizational values, but, but we know one, one is saying people's, you know, people's jobs should be preserved. That's, you know, that's important. And the other is saying, no, the, the life of the organization and its ability to continue financially should be preserved, right? And now they're in conflict. And, and so they could, you know, certainly get into, into a big conflict about that and yet and not be able to resolve it if they are not thinking about the values behind 
you know, why am I saying those things? You know, that, that's just the way I believe it is. I really right. believe people shouldn't be laid off or I really believe we need to preserve the financial health of the organization. I think that's exactly right, Bella. And, and I, like, I like how you talk about uh, getting behind that, well, that sort of surface level statement about what they value. Because I would, I would say in some cases, I would, I would maybe change the word. I'd say, that is, your, that is what you have concluded is the, is the answer, is the decision. Mm-hmm. Late people off is not a value. Late people off is a decision. Right, right. And you have to get behind that and say, now, what are you trying to achieve from that decision? And then you begin to un- be able to unpack the realm of values. And very often, I think if you go back far enough, you realize that people have shared value right? They have shared valuing, um, uh, but they see different pathways. And, th- and therein lies a lot of space, I think, for some creative problem solving. Yeah. And, and, but there's also, there's also space there for people to um, sort of, in retrospect, make up the reason why they feel this way if they haven't had the opportunity to really reflect on why they, they feel a particular way. Say that again. When you so, say- so, that, um, so one of the things that I've observed in my work is that when people are faced with things, particularly things that are uncomfortable to them, they mm-hmm. have the reaction first. And then not understanding why they have the reaction, then they, they and it's not that they're lying. They come up with reasons mm-hmm. as to, you know, why, why they behaved in a certain, in a certain way. Right. Right. And I think that goes to um, the, central importance of the cre- of creating the conditions where people can can become increasingly um, self-aware and honest um, because we certainly we can lie to ourselves we can fool ourselves is a better way of saying that we can fool ourselves uh, especially when we're afraid of looking bad right yeah. and so I think at some point talking about how to create those conditions might be uh, helpful so now you are back working um, as the rector of, of a church. Uh, you moved to the other side of the, the country, and you're doing you're doing other work um, as well in the in in the diocese that your church is in, and also um, with interfaith work. Um, so what have and what you've learned about conflict resolution? How have you been able to integrate that back into your your um, your working life? And yes, I was thinking. Um... Think, thinking about that in advance, and I, I realized that um, um, I need to preface any answer by saying that I think it's flowed both ways. Yeah, yeah. And there was actually a, a nice moment of realization for that in that for me, because that's what I'm I've, I've always up, uh, held out right that that the learning is is both ways. There there are things that I learned really through church and spiritual practices Mm -hmm. that I've brought into um, conflict resolution and vice versa, things that I've learned through the study and practice of specific methods and approaches that have have informed my my work as a a priest. Um, I've said a few of them already, uh, but but let me just sketch out a few, maybe in a more helpful way. Um, The first, I think, would be to... um, uh, you know, realize that we are all um, trying to solve our problems all the time. And we are making decisions based on what we know about ourselves and about our worlds, and we are going to make mistakes. Uh, and so 
uh, it's very helpful to uh, learn humility about that and honesty, uh, and then as much as possible, bring that back to the organization. So to admit when you've made a mistake or, or just when you've learned something, gosh, I didn't know that. And that creates, that helps to create a climate, a learning climate. Um, I think we, you and I have talked about how you, you, you've got to allow space for failure if you want to have a creative organization that's willing to take risks. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mentioned that Elise Boulding and the 200-year present. Um, even in small ways, I, I've learned uh, to take the longer view. Uh, I remember when I was a priest early on, uh, something happened. I, I, I didn't do something the way someone wanted, and the person was mad at me. And I thought the relationship was ruined forever. Life is ended. You know, I, I should go to another congregation. Mm. And then that family needed a priest to help their son get married, right? And I invested in that. I became a pastor to that son and to that family, and all was well, right? Uh, and that le- so so you know holding out the 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 real hope that there will be other chances, right? Uh, chances for repair. Um, also, uh, you know, working, remembering the relational aspect, uh, and I like to think not just of conflict resolution, but conflict prevention, that uh, as much as it's good to have skills to uh, be able to resolve issues, it's even better to prevent conflict from happening in the first place. And one of the ways we, we do that is by having well-rounded relationships with people. Um, so I'll tell you a story. Um, from the realm of global politics. Um, uh, so this is a story I was told at a party. I've never seen it written down. So how apocryphal, <laughs> I don't know. But the story went something, and the details are a little fuzzy, but the story went something like this. Uh, uh, this is the time of the Camp David Accord, right? So Anwar Sadat, Menachem Beg, and Jimmy Carter. It was not going well at Camp David. And one of them was about to leave. I think Begin was about to leave. And so Jimmy Carter reached into his pocket and, and I'm making some of the details up here, but the, but the, the, the Colonel is, is there and, and pulled out a picture of his grandchildren. And they got to talking about grandkids. And that turned the conversation because suddenly it wasn't about where they had been stuck in the negotiation. It was about what kind of world are they trying to create for their grandkids, All right? Wow. So to reach for that, human connection with someone in the moment and necessary, but, but also to be building that with people just creates such a richer field for, I think, living in organization, in organizations and in community the way we, we want, and then dealing with issues when they arise, right, in a healthy way. And I can see, you know, I can sort of imagine Jimmy Credit doing that in a way that's very authentic. It's not, not you, you couldn't imagine that Jimmy Carter would pull out a picture of grandchildren to, in order to, um, to manipulate people. No, no. And it may have been that he pointed to a picture of Menachem Begin's grandchildren that, yeah, had, that yeah. Begin had put on the, on, on his dresser. I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure exactly. Um, I, I, I'll, I'll, I've lost track of the question to some extent, um, but I, I'm happy to just keep going about things that I find useful. So things that I find useful. Yeah. Um, 
when you're in charge of an organization, it's, it's, it's easy to feel, uh, as one should responsible. Um, Mm -hmm. but there's a difference between being responsible and being, um, in control, right? How we, and so, so learning to, um, share control, which I think most of your listeners will know, um, but especially when there's conflict, it's challenging because part of the issue is trust, right? So taking that risk to figure out how to share a bit of control with, with the people who, with whom you may have a disagreement, right? Or a lack of understanding. And I'll give another example. Um, there is a wonderful Palestinian peacemaker by the name of Az- uh, 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 Aziz Abu Sarah. Uh, I met him when he was at the school, uh, but he's now moved on. He does Mejdi tours, by the way. Um, he developed along with uh, Mark Gopin, one of my mentors, um, what they call the, called the dual narrative approach to taking people to Israel-Palestine. The idea was that um, you know, if you just take people to Israel-Palestine and give them one side of the story, what you're doing is you're creating polarization. But if you can bring them into that environment and tell them both sides of the story in a compassionate way, you're creating you're creating a community with a shared understanding. And so I think organizationally to figure out ways to, um, to make space for a shared story to be developed is, is, is critical in conflict work. It sometimes is called building a better story or building a better narrative, uh, creating a shared narrative and one that has hope at the end of it, rather than a narrative where the only win is for someone to leave. Um, you know, I talked about um, stories. Um, you know, I would just underscore the idea of um, listening to help people tell their stories, especially in conflict. Listening for uh, how they're positioning themselves in that story. Um, you know, how much self awareness do they express? How much room are they leaving for other people to? Um, be persons of integrity, um, how defensive. Um, you, can, you can learn a lot. Um, you can get a lot of clues about what needs to happen next just through listening to how people tell the story of conflict. Um, and then I would also say um, it, it's important to figure out how intervening in one area, I would say, helping in one area is going to be good for the whole. Uh, I'll tell you why I think of this. Um, Another story from global politics, the Oslo Accords, right? Generally thought now to be a failure, to have failed. Um, Again, this is Israel-Palestine. The post hoc analysis of that was that these wonderful accords have been written among elites but there hadn't been work on the ground to prepare people to embrace what the leaders had decided. And so if, 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 the, if, the, if the whole sphere, organizational or nation, if you will, isn't somehow being prepared, um, things can fall apart. And, and also, um, just in general, 
if 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 there's intervention on one side of a conflict to lift people up, the people on the other side of the conflict often experience that as a threat unless they're also brought along. They lift it up as well. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So those are some of the things that 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 I don't actually have to use that much because <laughs> we have mm -hmm. in my in my current life as a congregational pastor, but I keep in mind as a as a conflict person. I think those are all actually very important for people who are working in organizations where you have been brought into the organization or asked in the organization to help create change, you know, to create a, you know, a transformation in how people work, because all of the things that you're talking about, um, you know, result in the ability to actually complete the change and have it truly be a transformation and not, not, not be yet another story about how the organization tried something and, and couldn't do it. And the nugget for me that, you know, that really shown that I think that, um, that uh, we could certainly um, think about more and work more on in the, in the work that people who are doing lean thinking and continuous improvement is, is, is this idea of listening, not for just what the story that people are telling, because we do that, you know, we go, we go and, you know, see what's actually happening. We ask people what's actually happening, but, but what you said about listening for how they're telling it and where they, where they see themselves in the story and then, and then, you know, helping to create a narrative where they can be successful and other people can be successful. It sounds to me that would be, would really build, a, you know, a change management approach that would be stronger because, you know, you, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't see people standing on the side and say, well, they came in and they did this and they took away that. And they, um, you know, I don't get to do this part of my job that I loved, you know, I previously loved. And, you know, it's about me versus them, but about, it's about, I was listened to and I was really heard. And, and I know I was heard because the person who was listening listened to how I was telling the story. So I think there's a lot to actually to unpack there. And I wish that we had more time today to talk about that because I think that is just a gem for, for thinking about how do we how do we do this. Um, that, by the I, way, in the in the field that's called position that's called positioning analysis in the narrative ah, in the narrative okay. approach. In case anyone right. wants to look it up. <laughs> okay, good. Positioning analysis. Look it up if you're interested. Right. Well, we only have a couple of, of, of minutes, uh, uh, Ted, to uh, to wrap up here. Um, and I would just just love in the last couple of minutes, if I'm um, thinking about young people who are studying their careers, uh, whether that's in a nonprofit world, in a for-profit world, in a secular world, in a you know, in a in a faith-based world, as they're studying out in organizations. And this, this is not just, you know, from your work in, in peace and conflict resolution, but, you know, from, from Ted Thompson, your, your whole life, what advice would you give that young person studying out? Mm. My son is not uh, so far off. I mean, he's, he's 15, so he's a little, he's not making a career choice yet, but uh, it's, it's not going to be too many years before he's choosing a college major. So this gets personal. Yeah, yeah I sure it does. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one thing I, I, I didn't say earlier um, about lessons uh, that I think fits here would be um, not to underestimate the, um, the need to take care of yourself. That, that, 
being a change agent, uh, seeking to initiate change, dealing with conflict, um, it is a whole body and mind <laughs> endeavor, and it and it and it costs. So to take care of your body and your mind and your spirit, um, and really be attentive to that is one of the best ways that you can be effective and remain effective for effective for a whole career. Um, I guess I would also say, um, you know, that, uh, and this is sort of the, the hold yourself lightly type of comment, um, uh, you will make mistakes, uh, you know, uh, so some that are, that bear good fruit, some that, some that don't, um, try not to get stuck in one way of analyzing, uh, what you're doing in an organization, uh, you know, engage others in asking what they see. Um, allow yourself to turn the problem around and see it from different angles and even with different approaches. And then just keep coming back to those basic questions. You know, what is true? Uh, what is what is good? Uh, and then allow yourself to be nurtured from your your spiritual sources. You know, what, what your sources of of um, strength and love. Uh, and you know you'll be on the path for wisdom, and you will be a, a blessing uh, for others as well as yourself. Wow! Thank you. Well, thank you, Ted Thompson, for joining with me to the edges of Lean. I've enjoyed this conversation, and I think that there is a you know a lot to to learn from the field of peace and conflict resolution when it comes um, to making um, both organizational change, but also you know, change in, in society. And there's so much that's needed now. So Belly, you made this much. delightful and not nearly as scary as I thought it would be. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Thanks so much. All right. Good to be with you. Bye everyone. Bella Engelbach. And I'd like to thank Dr. Ted Thompson for being my guest on the edges of lean. What have you learned from listening to Ted about conflict resolution? I'd love to hear from you. Find me on LinkedIn or comment wherever you watch or listen. And no matter how you travel to the edges of lean, your ratings, reviews, and comments are greatly appreciated. Please join me in exploring more of the edges of lean. There's a lot to learn. And check out my friends in the Lean Communicators community at leancommunicators.com. You'll find more podcasts and videos with lots of great new content every week. The Edges of Lean is written and produced by Bella Engelbach. This is a Lean for Humans production.